This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you by BoardGameTables.com. While none of us needs a gaming table, it sure would be great to have one as the centerpiece of your game days. Go check them out at BoardGameTables.com and take your gaming to the next level. Now, onto the show. Heavy Cardboard, Episode 53, Panthalos. Coming to you from the Adams County Courthouse in Brighton, Colorado, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I'm Amanda. Woohoo, the basement's getting framed. Yay! Designing as we go, kind of, per our contractor's wants. Mm-hmm. And it's shaping up to be a pretty great 1,700 square feet space of master suite and gaming area. Yes. I'm really stoked. I'm so excited, and I'm so glad that they are done framing just about because it is so loud. So unbelievably loud. <laughs> Oh, just wait until they start breaking up concrete. Hopefully they do that during the day, though. Yeah, but then poor Dana has to listen to it. God bless her, but it ain't us. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, So the Google map is getting a lot of pins. So if you're interested, go add yours and try and see, uh, maybe make some new gaming friends and find out where everybody is. We'll link to it in the show notes. Life has been insane lately. The The auction was enormous. Our house is covered in boxes and tape and games and bubble wrap and... Less games now after an entire carload yes. made, it to the, uh, made it to the post office today. Just, uh, I'm really questioning whether or not I want to do a massive auction mm-hmm. like that again or like a little, hey, here's seven games. Yeah. That type of thing. It, it's, it, I think this one was too big. I think so too. There were six or seven sellers and, uh, you know, hear from our game group. And I mean, it was successful. It was great. Got rid of a lot of games. A lot of people seem happy, but man, that was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. When you factor that in with the podcast, with getting ready to start con season for us, with the basement going on and my whole name change drama and all of that, it's been a lot on our plate lately. Yes. We had to have a little side plate for other stuff. Right, seriously. (laughs) So by the time this releases, we are on our way to West Texas Tabletop Convention, September 9th and 10th. So I guess that would be today and tomorrow as far as when this releases in San Angelo, Texas. If you're in the area, I I actually think it's free to attend. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to have, it's just open gaming. There's, you know, there's role-playing games, cosplay or whatever, but there's going to be mostly... uh, board gaming there's going to be a panel with other media folks that we're going to be on uh, our good buddies from the board game group over on facebook are going to be there mo brian and linden and we're going to have some heavy cardboard loot there as well but we're there to play games so hopefully uh hopefully we meet some listeners That'd yeah be cool. come up and say hi definitely i mean you should you know recognize the one which is me with hardly any hair anymore and Edward with a shaved head and beard. So we should you sh- we should be pretty easily findable. I think so. Plus, it's a perfect warm-up convention Absolutely. for me. 
uh, with Essen right around the corner, which I got to say, I'm pretty, it really hit home today Mm -hmm. because an hour ago when I got home, my press pass arrived. So that was, that was pretty cool. Pretty excited about that. Yes, absolutely. It was so cool to see, to see your press pass. I was so excited. We have a very, very busy autumn coming and Essen is just one piece of it. Right. So, okay. Yeah. The basement and all the normal home stuff that's going on here, but we have West West Texas Tabletop Con this week. We have Essen in like 30, right around 30 days. Then we have uh, Sasquatch and then we have BGG Con, Mm -hmm. then Thanksgiving, Christmas. Hey, and then get ready for Heavy Con. Yeah. It just... No rest for the wicked, busy, but first busy, world busy, problems, busy, busy. It's, it's awesome. I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Absolutely. Luckily, I'm going to have Matt and Dana here with me while you're in Germany, so at least I won't have to be by myself. I'm happy about that part. Yeah, I'm going to be miserable over there. It's going to be horrible oh, not gosh. having you there. Yeah, uh-huh. You won't even <laughs> recognize that I'm not there. <laughs> so luckily, I work for a company that cares about their employees. Um, I asked to move into this tiny little office that has a pocket door and only has one fluorescent light. Because hold on. hold on. What? What you called that an office? That's a closet. Okay, fine. It's a closet. That's fine. Call it a closet if you want. And um, that's why I said tiny little office. It d- it does look cozy. It's very cozy in there. And I've discovered that one of my big migraine triggers is fluorescent lights. So since I'm in my little closet now, I spend about ninety nine percent of my day in there with the fluorescent overhead light off and my. Um, manager bought me a little LED light that plugs into my computer. And so I have that going and it's, it's so nice. The base of the light like blends from one color to another and it's really cool and pretty. So I get to look at that and, and so I'm noticing a big difference in my headaches. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I just hope it keeps up and I think it will because and if there's still a fluorescent light on the outside of the closet. So if I start to feel a headache coming on, I've taken to closing the door. I made a little sign that says, I just need dark right now. Knock if you need me. And I've noticed that if I, as long as once I close that, then I'm pretty much golden. So I'm so happy. And I, quality of life outside of work has improved because of that as well. Yep, so that's I don't fantastic. come home miserable. Yeah, I don't come home miserable because I have a headache. I just don't have one to begin with, which is amazing. Sweet. Whoop, whoop. A number of people have asked me uh, about the whole passport slash name change drama. So I'm going to give the Reader's Digest version. It's still probably going to be long because it's me. <laughs> but here goes. Uh, when I was about nine years old, I w- uh, my mom remarried uh, my stepdad. I was never formally adopted as far as the courts go. Uh, But around that same time, I started using my stepdad's last name, which is Euler, which is what I've gone with for the last 32 some odd years. This is back in the mid 80s. And I had a social security card, my driver's license. I entered the Marine Corps under Euler, the whole nine yards. It was a total non-issue. Well, come 9-11, now it's an issue because every piece of identification for me says Euler on it except for one piece of paper, and that's a really important one when it comes to getting a passport, and that's my birth certificate that actually has my birth name on it. So fast forward to last June, and I had to 
I, I found out that in order to get my passport, I needed to have a legal name change to have my birth certificate amended. All right. Well, the process here in Colorado is I have to submit to the FBI and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for a background check, and that takes 12 to 14 weeks for the FBI to respond to that. Well, no one tells you, and no one told me until two months into this process, that, oh, if you pay $80 to a channeler, an FBI channeler, you can get that within 48 hours. It just so happened that I got mine in an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. So that two months that I waited, I didn't need to wait, but no one ever tells you that. So I finally got my background checks back uh, last week, week before, I forget. Week before. Week before. And then I had to make an appointment at the Adams County Courthouse to be able to go in front of the judge, swear that I'm me and why I want to have my name change, yada, 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 and do all that. Well, I called to set up a hearing and they say, well, the earliest we can get you in is October 14th. And I'm like, um, I leave for Germany October 10th. That's obviously a problem. And they were like, yeah, sorry, nothing we can do. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. I have cookies. <laughs> I can make cookies. Um, so I, I actually, I really did offer that. I said, look, is there anybody that I can talk to that might be able to expedite the process in extenuating circumstance cases? So long story short, I was able to talk to the clerk supervisor as well as the actual name change judge, his clerk. And they talked to the judge and the judge said, yeah, I'll waive the hearing. Come just bring in all his paperwork. And but he still has to get it published in the newspaper for three consecutive weeks. And I'm like, wait, it's 2016. You still have to publish this in a newspaper. And they're like, yeah. All right. So I go get that. The judge signs off on it. So I'm in the process of waiting two weeks from today for it to be the third week that it's been uh that it's been published, and then I can go back to the courthouse, pick up my certified uh, copy of my quote-unquote legal name change to the same name it's been for 32 years, and then I can send off overnight to the state of Michigan to get my birth certificate amended, and hopefully they get that back to me within the week, which I've already talked to the people there. They said they will, and then I can submit for my passport. Ugh. So yeah, you guys can understand why it's been a stressful summer as far as this has gone. Uh, I just, I just don't understand why the why the wheels of justice, I guess, turn so slow. But it is what it is, and in the end, I know I'm going to be able to make it in time. But yeah, what a miserable experience this has been. Just insane, absolutely insane. And for all those folks who don't know how to get in contact with us, Amanda, our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email address is contact at heavycardboard.com. We love hearing from you guys, so please don't be shy. Our Twitter handle is at heavycardboard. Our Facebook page is heavycardboard. Our YouTube channel is heavycardboardvids, V-I-D-S. Our Instagram is heavycardboard. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash heavycardboard. And our BGG guild number is 2044. This is David Cummings, the host of the No Sleep Podcast. The horror stories we tell play games with your head and can get pretty heavy. Good thing you love heavy games. You're listening to Heavy Cardboard. 
A quick shout out to the Boards Alive fellas for the iTunes review. We much appreciate it. Thank you very much. And continuing to say thanks to our Patreon supporters. A big, big thank you goes out to Mario Feminius, Hacken Sunderland, Maria Valinsky, Kurt Hesser, Justin Baird, Jay Volk, Marcin Olempa, Paul Grogan. Thanks, Paul. And Benjamin George. Thanks again to everybody that supports us, both by listening as well as those that go the extra mile on Patreon. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, Edward. So what is our latest contest? Well, I figure let's give away something great this episode, shall we? Sure. How about the winner's choice of either a copy of Arkwright from Capstone Games or when it releases a copy of 1846 from GMT? What should we make everybody do to enter this lovely contest? Since Essen's around the corner, why not hear what everybody's top three most anticipated games are that are coming out at Essen? Email us at contest at heavycardboard.com and you'll get one entry. However, if you call into our Google Voice account and leave us your top three via recorded message, you'll get three entries. We'll run this until September 25th and the winner will be announced in episode 55, the SM Preview Show. We may edit and use your messages in the show, so just make sure you're good with that before you call. But I think it'd be a fun way to to actually hear what y'all are excited about and to share that with our listeners so don't be shy yeah y'all get to hear our voices all the time we never we don't know what y'all sound like right fair is fair right yeah or if you don't want to you still get an entry by emailing all right amanda give them that phone number 720-675-8975 i see you shiver with anticipation I seem to have noticed that there are quite a few new boxes around the house. Have you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just get into this. Here we go. <laughs> so first up, we have a war game, Festung Europa, the campaign for Western Europe, 1943 to 1945 from Compass Games. It's the follow-up to Shifting Sands. It's a low counter-density card-driving game that I'm hoping to get Amanda to play soon. Mm-hmm. And it has a short rule book to boot. Um, I, whenever you showed me that one, I was excited to play that one instead of Shifting Sands because Festoon Europa, I like that theater more than the the Northern, Northern Africa. Africa. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up, we have Confucius, a 2008 game of wielding influence like a sledgehammer in China <laughs> during the Ming Dynasty. I bought it in a BGG auction from friend and listener Larry Rice. So thanks, Larry. Funny story on that. Tony Boydell sent us a copy to give away at HeavyCon last year. And he said, hey, it's hard to get here in the States. And so, hey, I I thought I would, you know, do y'all a solid for that. I was like, hey, thanks. And then who won it? Yoris. So uh, Yoris said, yeah, and it's going back to. Yeah, Edward told this story as he said, hey, here's Confucius. Who has Confucius? And Yoris goes, well, it's leaving America again. (laughs) (laughs) So then we got a package of games from Board and Dice, Exoplanets, and the mini expansions, Dice Brewing, and Multi-Universum, which has some really twisted yet amazing artwork in it, and I cannot wait to get that to the table. A most anticipated package from Stronghold Games arrived, which includes Terraforming Mars, one of my most anticipated games, well, of last year, Mm -hmm. and then when it finally came out this year... That was an interesting one. 
Also, my village and Porto Nigra, which looks pretty fantastic on the table. I'm excited to get both those to the table. Yep. An incredible laser cut wood prototype of the game Railroads by Social Hour Games. So the second edition of this 2.0 was on Kickstarter, but uh, Brian pulled it. He, he wants to test some things production wise first. And so he sent us one of the handmade prototypes. And oh, my. Thing is, is amazing. Uh, it, it is an absolute showpiece of a game. In, in the collection, even though it's a uh, prototype. More on that later. Mm -hmm. A couple of games from Don over at Nightworks, the highly anticipated, at least highly anticipated by me, Hands in the Sea, which is an evolution of the few acres of snow system. We talked about this a while back on the show a few times when Tony and I play tested it. Really, really excited to get that one to the table as well. Not to mention Forged in Steel, a card-driven midweight game about helping develop a county here in Colorado around the turn of the 20th century. So it's local history to boot. So yes, please. Yeah. Also got some Meeple Realty inserts. The amazingly intricate new insert for Tracarian. Holy cow. Good thing I like making puzzles or um, making models, you know, like model cars, model airplanes and stuff, because this is going to be an involved process, but it looks absolutely amazing. Got another copy of Arkwright's Mill to be able to give away on the show and got Mystic Taverns, which is for Terra Mystica, also to give away on the show. So thanks a lot to Meeple Realty for that. And if you're worried about putting the Tracurian insert together, we could just wait till... Brandon from Brawling Brothers comes up for a Broncos game and B could help you with it. That's a good point. Yeah. Good point. Lastly, a most mysterious game appeared at our mailbox this, this past weekend. A game called Everen, E-V-R-E-N. There's absolutely no info on this abstract game anywhere mm -hmm. until I read in the rule book that it's available for order or for free uh, print and play files over on Etsy. So it's an abstract game where the goal is to control the center of the board by moving your own pieces there while capturing your opponent's pieces. It's kind of chess-like in some ways. It, it, at least it seems. We haven't played it yet. But it has beautiful laser-etched wooden discs for the player pieces. And I want to try and get this played uh, hopefully before next episode so it can say yay or nay type thing. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. This is what happens uh, when we put our P.O. box on the website. So thanks, Oliver, and we'll delve into it soon. Wow, Edward, that was a lot of games. Yeah, seriously, it was like Christmas here, and it just kept coming. <laughs> and most of this stuff I didn't know was coming. I did know the Nightwork stuff Surprise! was coming because, you know, we were a backer on Kickstarter. But the rest of that, yeah, I, I had vague ideas on some of it, but the others were... Pure surprises, so yay. I like surprises. Oh, yeah. And because it's you, I know that you still have games, many, many games that you're hunting. So share with the listeners what some of them are. Oh, so many. See? <laughs> I did a live tweet storm of the SM preview list a while back and, and marked a solid 60 to 70 games for further investigation and to see what to put on the Anticipation Geek list. And by the time this is uh, uh, out there, actually, I will have updated that. So go check it out also in the show notes. So there's plenty out there that are common knowledge, stuff like A Feast for Odin, Biogenesis, Key to the City, stuff like that that everybody already knows about and everybody's either 
really excited about or not, as it were. But I wanted to mention a few more kind of obscure games that I'm looking forward to checking out. So there's a couple of 18xx games from Marflow Games, 1830 Netherlands, as well as 1881 Berlin, the second edition. Then there's, I'm just going to run these off real quick, The Colonists, Pixie Queen, Overseers, which has some amazing artwork, Docmas, Area 51 Top Secret, Phalanx with two X's. It's the same designer as today's feature, Panthelos. An abstract that only has 15 copies made by Cubico Games. It's called Fog of War. It has little hand-carved tanks, and it was cheap, so I'm one of those 15. There's going to be more on all these next month, as well as a whole bunch of others, when we do our SM Preview Show with our buddies Jim and Eric from Punching Cardboard. We're going to do a cross-posted episode in which we hope you all enjoy, so keep an ear out for that. So that's what I'm, and by I, I mean we, which I mean I, are hunting, but uh, looking forward to playing what you got. We played Terraforming Mars, and I'm looking forward to playing that one again now that I have a play under my belt to try to, you know, understand more about what's going on. Same here. I've only played PAX Premier once at BGGCon. Um, Cole taught us how to play it, the designer himself. And I, I would like to play that again. It's been almost a year now. And, um, I mean, I love my card game. So, of course, I'm on board with that. And so I would like for you to, for us to sit down and, and play it if possible. Would you be interested in that, sir? Oh, I would love to. It's absolutely one that I'm jonesing to play. Uh, through the ages as mm-hmm. well, because both of those tied in the last uh, Patreon-supported vote for feature. So I don't know if we should do both or pick one. Hmm. Mm. Either way, we should get both of those played, I feel like. Absolutely. Anything else? else for you? I'm looking forward to playing more Scythe. Uh, I mentioned earlier Multi-Universum I want to get to the table, as well as we have an upcoming episode on Kalis. So more of that, please. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to throw Princess of the Renaissance in there because in theory, I'm hoping while we're gone, Matt will learn that so we can teach it so the four of us can play it. All right. So I've been talking a while. You want to start with what we've been playing or at least what you've been playing? Because there's some crossover, but not a ton, I don't think. Yeah, there is. But that's okay. Maybe different sessions, but yeah, a lot of the same games. Obviously been playing a lot of Panthelos. The board game group guys came up to Colorado Springs, Parker area, and stayed with one of our friends, Dave, down there. And we all hopped in the car and drove down and and played games with with them all day on Saturday, which was a lot of fun. It was great to see the fellas. It was. And we get to see them two weeks in a row. Yay. Brian, Dana, and I played the Age of Steam map, the Berlin Wall, and I got my teeth completely kicked in, but still had fun. We also that seems to happen a lot to you in first, first place games. of Aegis theme yep. maps. Yep. And then after that, then you come to womp on people. But that first game can be a bit rough. Well, I don't know about the whomping, but I at least don't get my teeth kicked in. Maybe just like no, punched in the face a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> you also played Railroads there, which was really, that's a really pretty game. Um, well, it's not only pretty, but it, it has like an Aegis theme mm-hmm. meets winsome feel to it. Because the the designer is friends with John Bohr, and they both live there in Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh area. So it would make sense 
that he would kind of draw some of his inspiration from the Winsome games. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some, I guess, a good way to put it would be unintuitive yes. track lane rules for yes. those that are experienced in Age of Steam uh, or, and or yeah. in 18xx yeah. game. But it wasn't unpleasant. It, I, I enjoyed the game. It just mm-hmm. it took some getting used to, and you almost had to retrain your brain how to lay track oh, yeah. in that game. But oh my lord, was that a beautifully produced game! So keep an eye on Twitter for the next couple of weeks while we play it some more before we uh, talk about it some more. So yeah, keep an eye there. Yep, and that's actually why we played the Berlin Wall map is because. Brian and Dana and I were like, yeah, we really want to keep laying down track. So we played Age of Steam. We also played Terraforming Mars, which we enjoyed. Uh, Not last week, but the weekend before, we went over to Banker Dave's house for his birthday. And we played Dominant Species, a six-player game, which was awesome. Fantastic. With a couple of new players Mm -hmm. that don't normally play heavy games. And they did great. And The Climbers, which I had actually never played before. And that was a lot of fun. How had you never... That was such a shock to me when you (laughs) said that. I don't know. I feel like I had failed somehow. (laughs) Nah. So what have you played that I didn't mention? Anything? Oh boy, there's a whole lot here. Let's see. So I played the War Company expandable card game, which is... It's a simple card game rules-wise where the goal of the game is to deck your opponent or run them out of cards. It has really beautiful artwork and it's a fun game to play. Brandon sent us a couple of the decks and Matt and I have been playing it and then Dan and I played it. And once we got a couple of simple rules questions answered, we've really genuinely enjoyed it. It feels familiar and at the same time original, which I think that's a that's a compliment, I feel like. Yeah, I would take it as that. And I got to say, as someone who doesn't vibe on space themes too much, the artwork's pretty amazing, uh, and I enjoy it. So I think it's still over on Kickstarter. So if if that sounds interesting, take a look. Uh, War Company or War Co. Mm-hmm. Dot <laughs> expandable card game. We played some more Crisis and really enjoyed our play of that with it on the hard difficulty. And oh my, does that make it hard? Yeah. We've played Atten, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. I played some two and three player Arboretum. Played a three player St. Petersburg. We busted out Millennium Blades, which it just continues to be just a such a fun game. And it's the only game that I've played in memory that truly amps up my heart rate. Like it, it gets me, it, it gets the blood pumping, which is crazy to me to think that a board game and that's a non-dexterity game does that. But it definitely so, does. Yeah, it's and so I, much fun. And I apparently completely missed the last time that we talked about what we had played and this time. So all of these games that he's talking about, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oops. Well, with the uh, the board game group guys, uh, I busted out a a play of In the Shadow of the Emperor. Mo wanted to play that, and it's an old game, and it very much shows its age because it has some mechanics in it that just they just feel older, like you would expect in an older game. However, the area majority stuff in it, I really enjoyed, and it was 
It was not an unpleasant game. It's not one I would I would be, ooh, we need to go play that. But at the same time, if somebody said, hey, let's play uh, in the Shadow of the Emperor again, I'd say, sure, we've got you know, an hour, 90 minutes to kill. Let's do it. And I played it once a couple years ago, and I didn't care for it. But again, that was a couple years ago. So yeah, I'd be, I, I, I'd be interested to hear if, if your tastes have evolved to a point to where you would enjoy it or no, that's just not your cup of tea. Mm-hmm. After playing that moment, uh, kick my butt in a game of Clask. You know, I've heard uh, Kimberly talk about that and some other people on Twitter. And it looked like kind of a magnet version of shuffleboard or air hockey, kind of. And I was like, eh, but when I played it, okay, that's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was uh, smaller than I expected. Um, sits on the tabletop, but just a lot of fun. A really cool little air hockey implementation with magnets. I think that's a good way to think of it. Also played a couple games of Card City, which continues to be one of our, uh, the hot filler for right now for for a lot of us in the group. Mm-hmm. Then there were two last ones, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation on this one, but it's uh, Condottieri, I think. And this is an old game where it's a backstabby card game uh, to where you're area control as well as not really trick taking but just a really interesting card play and it has the worst shaped cards in the world but really fun we enjoyed it that was a the a good end of the night game for all of us to you know stab each other in the back a little bit and then last but not least man what a joy this was Thanks to Matt for asking to play it, but finally got Three Kingdoms Redux back to the table. And it was Matt's first play and Dan's first play. And both of them were like, yeah, we need to play this again and often. This is fantastic. And yep, we know already. So I'm glad that I was able to spread the love. But thanks to Matt for bringing it up because it, I just... I don't know why it hadn't hit hit the table, but I'm certainly glad it did. It was so, so much fun. We want to thank the great folks over at GameStar Plus for their sponsorship of the show. When you put together great people with a great reputation with a great inventory of games, which includes many imports and hard-to-find games, you have a winning combination. Their tagline is home of great games at great prices, so check them out at GameStarPlus.com. If you're looking for an import game, or really any game that may or may not be widely available, don't hesitate to contact Velma at games at gamesurplus.com and she'll work her magic for you. And when you do, make sure to tell them that Heavy Cardboard sent you. Edward, I, can't, I don't know how to say this. Is it Atten or a ton? A ton? I think... So it's ancient Egyptian and nobody speaks this anymore. Right. So it's either Aten or Aten. It's A-T-O-N. Designed and published 2005 by Thorsten Gimler and Queen Games. It's two players only and plays in about 30 minutes. So we're going to go with Aten or Aten. I'll probably interchange them. So just roll with it. Atten's a tactical two-player abstract area control game where players have equal forces that are vying to occupy the same space. It's a tug-of-war that's played over a variable amount of rounds where each player plays cards to each of their own four cartouches. And man, that's a fun word to say. Cartouche. Yes. 
in order to place or remove discs into strategic locations under the four temples on the board. When enough discs are removed from the board by the players, a scoring round is triggered and each temple is evaluated. Points are awarded based on each individual temple scoring conditions, but all are won by area control in each of the four temples, as well as bonus scoring on certain spaces within the temples. This cycle of playing cards and placing and removing discs is repeated round after round until one player either hits 40 points and wins, or one of the two instant win conditions is met. Those are filling the temple entirely with their own discs, or filling all the yellow or green spaces of all the temples with their own discs. Players accomplish these things by secretly playing one card from their own identical deck of cards, whose values range from one to four into each of the four cartouches. There it is again. <laughs> Once both players have laid down their four cards, they're simultaneously revealed and each cartouche is then evaluated. It's very easy and quick to pick up and learn, but there's plenty of subtleties to discover with repeated play. Mm -hmm. There's multiple paths to victory. 40 points is the typical way to win the game, but other ways are viable enough to keep each player on their toes. We've seen each victory condition win, or at least on the cusp of winning. Players can bluff and feint, even though everything's in plain sight. Make it look like they're going for control of one temple when they're really trying to fill in all the yellow or green spaces in all the temples, or just fill a temple entirely. It's surprising how easily you can get caught up in your own strategy and lose sight of your opponent's plans, even though it's right in front of you. It really is. I last time, One of the last times we played this, I tried to do the immediate win condition of filling in all of the yellow areas. I was almost there and you figured out what I was doing. I was so frustrated <laughs> and then you wound yeah, up it's winning. It's funny. I mean, the board's right in front of me. It should be obvious that, oh, hey, you have almost all the yellow filled in. I need to either place in the yellow and or remove some right. of yours that are in the yellow spaces. But you get so caught up and you're, you're, you have so many balls in yep. the air that you're juggling and stuff and, and get lost in your own head. It's easy to, to miss. It very much so, is. You forget that you need to be doing something other than focusing on what you're doing. Totally. So there's variable timing of the scoring, which is an interesting twist. Mm -hmm. It's possible to go through an entire deck of cards and then reshuffle before enough discs are removed for scoring to trigger. Other times it can happen in like three or four rounds because you're removing just a ton of discs. It all depends on the if the players feel they're in a position to score well or not. So you might drag your feet. Oh, hey, I don't think I'm going to score a lot of points looking at the current board state so i'm not going to remove a lot of discs and it just i know that you know that i know right. that you know even though again everything is out in the open except for what cards you're playing into what cartouche cartouche you shouldn't have all the fun and it's competitive every single time you don't go into it thinking you're going to have the exact same strategy that you tried before because that rarely works so it's because it's because it's like that, you do, it doesn't get stale. You can play a different game every time, and it's always competitive. Totally agree. You can also play to tie in the different, uh, different uh, temples in order to negate scoring. It's a viable strategy of defense while you buy yourself time for one of the instant win categories, if that's what you're trying to do. 
The card plays clever in that even though your cards only range from one to four, each cartouche assesses different rules. So playing which card in what cartouche <laughs> can be a bit of a brain burn in and of itself. So you're kind of playing your own game as well as trying to play your opponents and that can add layers of decision into every card play. Each player has one single use exchange token that they can use to redraw their hand of four cards, which really helps offset a poor draw in a really inopportune time. Mm -hmm. And there's just a surprising amount of play in just a tiny box in a quick play time. You can easily do like a best of three in the time of a regular quote unquote school night game, right. but not feel like you wasted your time playing a game without meaningful decisions. Right. And even if you don't want to do that, you can also, if you, hey, it's eight o'clock, let's play a quick game before we go to bed or before we start to wind down for the night. Pop this out and play it and it's just enough thought needed to be, you know, fun and not boring, but it's not so much that you're mentally absolutely exhausted after you play it. Spot on. So on the flip side, some stuff that, well, at least on a negative side that I feel like I should bring up. The theme is non-existent. The ancient Egypt theme, while making for attractive artwork, could not matter less. No. It's an abstract. The cards are small, like mini euro or whatever, something like that. Ticket to ride, original mm -hmm, small mm -hmm. card size. It's not an issue for me, and the numbers are big enough on them to where you can read it clearly. But still, again, if you have big sausages for fingers like I do, <laughs> then you know it might be a problem for you. I have tiny little girly hands, so it doesn't bother me. Not all of the scoring is spelled out on the board. The four temple scoring is, but the bonuses for mo the most black spaces as well as the bonus scoring spaces isn't called out. And it's it's easy to overlook the removal of discs post-scoring each time. I mean, honestly, I'm nitpicking because once you've played this game, once you know how that mm -hmm, works. Mm -hmm. so it and, and the rules are literally four pages, front and back of two small sheets. Uh, so it's easy enough to reference, but it's not called out on the board. Lastly, even though it's a small box, it could have been smaller. There's a giant insert. Mm -hmm. So the box is something like, I don't know, four to six inches thick. Now, nah, four to five inches, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, there's no reason. Um, and it's it's just a, it's the size of a super, super, like two thick paperback books back to back. Mm -hmm. And it could have been the size of an Arboretum box mm -hmm. or, you know something very small but it is what it is it's still a very small footprint and again i'm nitpicking so in summary otten or atten is simple to learn small game with a hard how do you pronounce it name that delivers a surprisingly enjoyable amount of challenges a clever abstract area control game in euro clothing for the 15 or so bucks that the game's going to cost you i can absolutely recommend it so for me for a filler as it is, it's an easy five for me. How about you? Same. It's a really, right. really good one and enjoyable. And like I said, you don't you don't have to use your brain so much that you're not mentally ready to play a harder game after. But it's just a, it's you know more complex than Bandu or something. But it also can. It could go super meta once you get used to yeah. your opponent. And so you can, it can be that super hard brain burn if you choose it if to be. If you choose it to be. But if you don't, then it's not. And that's Atten or Atten. Cartouche. A ton? 
while we're on this whole abstract kick, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick it over into the Middle East? <laughs> All right, let's talk some Tigris and Euphrates. It was designed by Reiner Knizia and been published by multiple places, but most recently by Fantasy Flight. It plays two to four players and plays in about 90 minutes. Tigris and Euphrates is a very abstract civilization game. Players use leaders to be able to place tiles. Tiles are resources, and you can cause catastrophes with tiles. You receive points from tile placement. There are four different colors of tiles and four different colors of points. Your end score is determined by the lowest number of points. Whatever color you have the least of, that is your score. The last time I played, my winning score was eight. That gives you any indication. Each turn consists of two actions. With those two actions, you can do any of the following, or you can double up on one. Place a leader, which must be next to a temple. Place a tile in one of the four colors onto the board. Place a catastrophe tile on the board, or discard your tiles and draw new ones. There is one river in the, in the game on the board, and only water tiles, which are blue, can be placed there. Nothing else. When you play the tiles, you receive points in that color. Each kingdom is separate from the other until it is joined by a tile, and once that happens, a war begins. A war is resolved as such. When the joining tile is placed, a marker is placed on top of that tile to divide the two kingdoms. The aggressor then determines what color they want to fight with, and that is resolved. The player with the most tiles of that color, along with the leader of that same color, is the victor. The loser must remove all lost tiles and leader from the game board. The victor takes that many points in that same color. If the kingdom is still connected, then the aggressor selects the next color they want to fight in, and so on. The player with the most points in the color they have the least of wins. So all information is hidden, the t scores, the tiles remaining, and I like that because it helps with APs, because if you don't know immediately what everyone has left, it's easier to just play your game. You don't have to worry about what the other person has and try to figure out if that's really what you want to do, because they might do this and you can do that, and it's just easier to just play your game. Totally agree. A lot of times I'm of the mind that, hey, once public information, always public information, but that also so encourages AP and there's enough of that in this game mm -hmm. without that, that it would be, at least in my opinion, unplayable otherwise. Yeah. But again, that my, mine's only after one play. So take that with a grain of salt. But yes, I, for what it's worth, I completely agree with you. The only version of this I've played is the Fantasy Flight release, played it with Mark and PC, and it was Mark's copy. And it has really cool molded bits for the leaders and for the monuments. And the Mayfair edition, which is the one we have, has wooden bits. I don't know which I would like better, but the F FFG ones were fine enough. There's interesting decisions to be made the entire length of the game, and I didn't feel like it overstayed its welcome mm -mm. at all. Not at all. And it's very easy to get going in the game. It's it's quite simple to learn, but it's very hard to master it. Yep. Simple rules overhead. Uh, just every decision just sucks yeah. in a good way. Uh, the rules themselves, they're not terribly hard, but the why you would want to do things can be really hard. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy the Kinesia scoring of whatever you have the least of is your score. It forces you to diversify. It's really similar to the scoring of another game that I really, really enjoy, but has a, well, a, a darker theme, but maybe not terribly darker. 
Yeah, it is. Who am I kidding? <laughs> Colonialism. As our listeners know, we're not super keen on luck-filled games. However, the luck of the draw here, it really forces you to solve short and long-term problems here, So I or, or short and long-term puzzles, so I can understand, and it fits the game here. It makes sense, and I like some of the uncertainty that you need, be it a war game, a civ game, that type of right. game. Right. I mean, the backdraw for tiles can be frustrating if you don't draw the color that you need, but I like playing with what I'm given, and it makes it more difficult in my mind. Everybody's in the same boat, right? right? And it, it, I mean, it can be very frustrating, but also rewarding whenever you that piece falls together, and you're like, "Oh, that!" Either that, or hey, I made applesauce out of oranges. <laughs> so there's lots of screw you opportunities and moments, which can be good unless you're the victim but even then it can be oh okay that was pretty that was an awesome yeah, move. Uh, good job good job yeah Asshole. exactly <laughs> and last but not least i mean there's just really great mental gymnastics in here the game feels like a true brain burner and i thoroughly enjoy that and all the frustration that that game can provide mm-hmm so I played this game twice in quick succession, and maybe I just have starry eyes. I don't know. But what what do you not like about it? Well, there's quite the learning curve on this. Now, the rules aren't hard, but the the actual strategy and all that that goes into it, there's a bit of a curve, and it just – it really, really was difficult for me to wrap my head around AP can crush the game, and that's with all the stuff hidden. Um, I I know that I AP'd the hell out of a couple of my turns, and it was really frustrating that that happened. Um, and I felt bad, I guess, for everybody else that I just I was just paralyzed by overanalyzing stuff. But also some of that comes from, wait, if I do this, how does that work again? Mm -hmm. You know, that type thing. So I think that might go down some with repeated plays. So again, take that with a grain of salt. It's possible for players or in other words, me in my first game to lose a significant battle and just be out of the game midway through. Keeping straight internal versus external conflicts really kicked my butt as well. Um, I read it as described as internal conflict is like a purely political struggle within a nation. It determines control but doesn't damage infrastructure. External conflict is like a war between nations. Towns will be burned, fields will be salted, etc., etc. Had I known that ahead of time, that would have been helpful. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe the difference. Exactly. That would have helped me keep it straight in my head. And you're going to have to pay your dues to get good at the game. The differences in experience levels will absolutely punish new players. Again, this isn't necessarily a negative. It's just food for thought for folks. It's a game that I can appreciate, but I'm just never going to dedicate myself to getting good at it. In that way, it's similar to chess or go or something like that. And it has enough depth to warrant the amount of time and practice to get good at it. But that just doesn't interest me. And that's fine. If it doesn't, you know, I don't want you to force yourself to play it. Right. And I won't. But it's a game that I don't mind having it come out and having it kick my butt, you know, every so often. Mm -hmm. Tigers and Euphrates is Kenizia's best game, I think. I've played it twice in immediate succession with three and with four players. And it's a game that will take at least 10 plays before I have a good idea of how the intricacies of the game work. 
After my initial two plays, I feel wholly confident in rating this game a five. And it was in my top 50. Interesting. That's strong. Yeah, I really liked it. For me, Tigris and Euphrates is a divisive game, and I understand why. The depth of the decisions and the layers that I'm sure will reveal themselves with repeated play reward those that choose to dive down that rabbit hole. I feel comfortable comparing that aspect to other games I've heard described like that, games like Go, Chess, Dutch Inner City. Games that reveal more and more about themselves after dozens or even hundreds of games. While I appreciate games like that, they're not games that I want to spend the effort and time with. Don't get me wrong, I certainly would enjoy playing Tigris and Euphrates more, but I also understand that I'm never going to get good at it. And I'm okay with that, but I do want to play it more. But at the same time, I'm not jonesing to play more. I appreciate the genius of the game, but I also appreciate that it's not going to appeal to all gamers nor to all groups. So with my one play, I'm not willing to rate it, but um, yeah, I understand the love that it gets from those that love it, and I understand the dislike from those that dislike it. And that's Tigris and Euphrates. This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you with support from Meeple Realty. We recently put together the Arkwright insert and it is absolutely fantastic. It makes setup and teardown so much easier and everything fits perfectly into the box. No half open box here. All of their inserts are very well made and add to gameplay of each game. Whether it's individual dice towers for Castles of Burgundy or literally the only way possible to store Caverna without the box exploding, Meeple Realty is plainly awesome. Check them out at MeepleRealty.com today. And when you buy one of their great inserts, tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you in the notes area at checkout. So earlier we talked like Egyptian stuff. So now let's talk mythological type of things. Yeah, ancient Greece. And that is Panthelos. Published in 2014, designed by Bernd Eisenstein, artist Matthias Katrian. Published by Iron Games, which I believe is Bern Eisenstein's own company. It plays 2 to 5, plays in 60 to 90 minutes, depending on player count. As far as availability and cost goes, you're looking at about 45 to 50 bucks at your friendly online game store, or about, you know, 30 bucks or so in the aftermarket. What's going on in the game? So Panthelos is an action selection or worker placement game with a fair bit of direct confrontation that isn't seen too often in typical Euro-style worker placement games. Players use dice as workers to designate the worker's level, which, as they get promoted or demoted, allow for either better benefits, earlier benefits, and potentially greater victory points at the end of the game. Workers once used on a given turn must rest for a turn with some exceptions and are not available for use in the following round. Also, with the game being set in ancient Greece, mythology, as you mentioned, comes into play in the form of titans that either fight for or against the players respectively. Avoiding these confrontations is a sure way to ensure that you'll lose, so therefore you are it's all but required to fight some in this game. After eight rounds at most, players will add up the level of their workers, ship any goods that they haven't shipped overseas for added victory points, and the winners whoever has the most points. Long live the Titans. How does scalability go with the game? I think it plays great at all player counts that I've played. Let me start by saying that the game board's double-sided. 
based on a player count, be it two and three player on one side, four and five player on the other side. So I feel like the game definitely scales appropriately. But if you crave tighter worker placement games, then the higher player count is optimal for each side of the board, which is three and five respectively. However, I have to say that while I do enjoy tighter gameplay in regards to the more uh, constricted actions in most action selection worker placement games, I was really pleasantly surprised that it played great uh, across that entire range. Right. The only one that I haven't played is I haven't played it four, but I've played it two, three and five. And I got to say, I really enjoyed the two player a lot more than I was expecting to. Same here. Uh, definitely. It's it's I, I don't want to call it zero sum, but uh, as we'll get into this more, obviously, it takes out some of the mystery mm-hmm. as to who you're going to be fighting when you're in the arena. However, um, there are it also introduces other elements into the game that aren't as prevalent in the multiplayer game as they are in the two player game, which I think is a is a huge boon to the game. Oh, yeah, it it. It scales very, very well to all the way to five. It's it's great. All right, so let's talk about the cardboard. So components, graphic design, artwork, mm-hmm. etc. As far as the components go, I think it's solid, typical, mm-hmm. you know, cardboard punch outs and wooden components. Unspectacular, but that's not damning with faint praise. It just means that it's standard and not substandard. Exactly. You know what just I mean? Just normal. Yep. Has standard wooden opaque dice, but the dice are never rolled, so the lightness, the, the the lack of weight in the dice doesn't bother me. And the graphic design is pretty good when it comes to understanding what things printed on the board are and what your steps are. Yeah, it, it's really good as far as assisting you, uh, like helping the players play the game. It's clear and... Equally as important, it's consistent symbology in what the different actions do and the available actions uh, locations for the workers. The game's completely language independent. Um, However, there are a couple of instances that could have been better. Like what? The available worker placement locations are marked with a die face showing what level of worker is needed for a given location. That's great. However, there are two locations that are unlimited that... That's not really clear. Mm -hmm. Also, each round uses a pictured die face to convey information, but those are not available worker placement locations. So it's simple to clarify, but it could have been completely eliminated if they just used some sort of regular numbers as opposed to carrying on the die theme to the non-worker placement locations. Again, minor criticism, but one that should be pointed out. So that's number one. The second part, in my opinion, is that there are four different elements, earth, wind, fire, and water, that identify the different type of Titan and Titan reinforcement discs, tiles, or locations, respectively. The choices for earth and fire were solid. Those are crystal clear. It's obvious what these two are. However, air and water graphic design choices were poor at best. Mm -hmm. If you study them, you can see what they were going for. Like if you had seen this like on a monitor and blown up, you'd be like, oh, obviously that looks like the water from the Brita filter. But when it's, you know, a small little one inch across one and a half inch, whatever disc, uh, and the picture is just a portion of that, uh, I feel like they're just too similar and it's unclear at a glance until you get used to the game. Just a just a poor choice in general that really doesn't assist in playing the game, which makes it a graphic design fail, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel like that 
like you said, I feel like it was probably looked just fine on a gigantic screen when it was being designed. But once you scrunch it down to a tiny little circle, it's, it's really hard to tell the difference between water and air. Right. And the, the fact that it's air and the fact that it's water doesn't really matter as long as, oh, this matches that. Right. But it still could have been clearer. You could have gone with the traditional, hey, it's a cloud blowing wind, you know, and the little curly cues right. of wind. But whatever. I don't want to harp on it too much. Moving on to artwork. So let me preface <laughs> that artwork is subjective, but I am not a fan of it at all. The chosen artwork for the Titans is just unappealing in every in every fashion, yeah. just completely. Whoever chose the artwork for the box cover did a really big disservice to the game in general. It doesn't represent the game, and they chose the weakest part of the artwork to highlight mm-hmm. on the box cover. And I'm like, come on, man. That's just, I, I, I genuinely believe that this is contributing to the obscurity of the game due to the poor artwork choices, I think. I completely agree because if you look at that box cover, there is absolutely zero way that you would think that that game was inside that box. There is no way. It doesn't correlate. I mean, yes, there are Titans in the game, but that's not the feature or, you know, the the, the main aspect of the game. And it just really big disservice. Um, However, some of the top-down scenes on the game board are interesting and some are, you know, humorous. It it doesn't detract when you're focusing from the game, so well done there. There's a dude in the bath that's swimming. You can see his belly. He's floating on his back. Um, Overall, I would give the artwork a a below-average grade as a whole. It doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the game, but those that artwork is a big deal to, be aware of that. How about you? I think it's horrible. Um, but again, I can see past that and I can see the game that's inside it. I'm not going to be paying attention to what the Titans look like. It could literally be stick figures. If it's a good game, great. But I'm still going to be like, wow, this is really bad art. <laughs> Fair <here."> point. And <laughs> All right. So there, we're going to talk, we're going to add in a couple of things into this review that we haven't normally done in the past that uh, a couple of people have mentioned. So hopefully people... Uh, find use of that. The first of those is box size. So it's a non-standard box size, but I think it's non-standard in a good way. It's about 12 and a half inches square, but the good news is it's thin. It's only two uh-huh. inches thick. So even though it's, you know, not your traditional, uh, you know, Feld or Uwe Rosenberg game box size, it's really thin. So it takes up less room thickness wise on the shelf. All right, moving on to the rulebook clarity and quality. The rulebook's in numerous languages, and it's it's actually really short. Uh, it's laid out well, and it's fairly clear. One thing tripped us up the first game, and that was how the arena combat works. Uh, quick check on BGG, and it was cleared up. So overall, it's decent. I, I wouldn't call it good, but I wouldn't call it poor. It's just, it's fine. I, I think it lays out what you need. Uh, to be able to play the game without referencing too much, which it could, like I said, it could be improved to where you don't have to reference at all. But I think there's always going to be some of that in some respect, especially once you get into the medium and heavy games that we play. Right. Another topic that listeners have mentioned wanting to hear about is the time to teach, set up, tear down, etc. of the game. How's, how does Panthelos rank on that? 
So as far as setup goes, it's really straightforward. Just piles of tokens. Each player has their own player pieces. There's a little draw bag for the goods tiles. Very, very simple setup. Very, very straightforward. As far as teardown goes, there's no insert in the box, but a handful of baggies is all you need to store the game. And cleanup is just a matter of sorting the player pieces into their own baggies and individual groups of tokens. Again, very straightforward. And I, for one, appreciate the lack of an insert with the game because more often than not, these hit the trash anyway. Mm -hmm. So if in general, if that can help to bring the cost of games down, hey, I'm all for it, you know? Absolutely. And don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously we're big fans of Meeple Realties inserts and stuff like that, but I'm talking the stock inserts that come with games. I 99% I would just rather they don't exist. I think everybody would. As far as teaching and learning, pretty simple and procedural approach I've noticed uh, works well. Place workers one at a time once all players pass, resolve all action spaces, save for those that happened immediately upon placement, explain each action selection space and what it does, explain combat versus the underworld titan and the uh, and versus the other players in the arena, and then the end game conditions and potential end game other in-game condition as well as in-game scoring and you're all set so not too not too intricate here and it's not going to take you an hour to teach it correct all right so what do you think heavy medium somewhere in between what do you got more medium um than like medium heavy because there's just not a ton of complexity going on here the i mean it's not a heavy game when it comes to rules and mechanics i agree it's uh i'd put it solid medium here uh, so rolling on to complexity, really straightforward, relatively low rules overhead, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Once you get it down, it's not that hard to remember what everything means. Correct. As opposed to something like we talked about previously with Tigris and Euphrates, keeping mm-hmm. things straight, this is much more straightforward. Yep. So as far as planning goes, what do you think? There is some, there's some stuff here. I feel like that you have to make sure that you have plenty of Titans to be able to fight both the underworld Titan as well as your other players. you all, And you always need to make sure that if you have really high value Titans that you have enough of your colored discs in order to save them from dying after combat. To retain them, yes, yes, absolutely. It's mostly tactical, um, I would say, because of everything uh, wiping and being refreshed at the beginning of each turn. However, there is some long-term planning, I would agree. Shipping heavy strategy versus combat in the arena focus, which way you're going to go. Loading up in the crypt or not also requires looking forward down the road a bit. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some planning here, but it's it's more tactical than it is long-term strategy, I think. What I've learned in playing the game and doing the shipping is that if you have multiples of one type of good that you're trying to that you're going to sell. It's better to make sure that you only really have one at a time because you have to ship your entire stack whenever you ship. So if you're going for a shipping heavyish strategy to get those bigger in-game points, it's better to only ship, you know, one thing of oil or whatever instead of four or five, five right? right? Okay, yeah. So you after you ship it, then you can start hoarding them, but it's better to ship the first one as quick as you can so that you can get that for in-game scoring. With the caveat that depending on how the game ends, that may never take place. So you could be spinning your tires. Exactly, but you just hope it does. Right, or (laughs) help make it happen. Right. So as far as luck and random factors, there's, there's a fair bit here as far as randomness. 
So each round, there's random seating for shipping tiles, for the Mercator, for anyone that was used, goods, titans, reinforcement tiles, and artisans. All of those get refreshed every round, so that's something to be aware of. Uh, as well as beginning of each round, you discover the element and strength of the Titan from the underworld that everyone is going to have to face. It's the same for everybody, though. So you can plan accordingly or choose to ignore it altogether. So while there is a fair bit of randomness in that respect, as well as randomness in your Titan draws in any bonus goods or bonus reinforcement tiles you may get, there is total randomness in that. Everything else you at least see at the beginning of the round and you can start to plan out your one round mm -hmm. here or possibly one further round subsequent to be able to go forward. But there is a fair bit of randomness in yeah, that respect. There is. But again, like you said, you can you can plan ahead for it. You're not you don't find out what the underworld titan is right before you have to fight it. You have a bit of you have a whole round to try to prepare for it. Unless somebody takes the Mercator, which can change that. But we'll get into that more in a little bit. Yes. And as far as getting it length, a couple of rounds uh, to get the mechanics easy enough. Um, however, the valuing of actions, though, requires a couple of games, which is I, I see that very much as a strength to this game. Oh, yeah. All right. So what makes this game enjoyable if it does? Like you were talking about earlier with the um, the luck and random factor is about like what titans you draw. As long as you're able to obtain reinforcements that work with what you need it to work for, because the reinforcements can change the type of element that the titan is. So like say you're, you're going to need to fight an earth element and all the titans that you have are only water. You can, if, as long as you can get that earth reinforcement, then you're good. And I like that that... It, the reinforcements can change what element you're fighting with, you know, like I said. So I feel like that's, I think that that makes it enjoyable because it's able to mitigate any of that luck that there might be. Uh, to piggyback on that, I also like that you can just completely ignore it. Screw it. I'm not going to fight him. You win. Right. <laughs> okay, here you go. And all you have to do is put a disc in the crypt, which doesn't hurt you other than you lose one of your 12 discs unless... The crypt fills up between all the players, depending on player count, how many discs. I think it ranges from 8 to 20, depending on 2 to 5 players. So as long as that doesn't fill up, then it doesn't hurt you in the least. And I love that flexibility that the game gives you. And it also is player dependent as far as whether or not that stuff triggers and whether or not the game ends mm -hmm. prematurely. And... I love that that is in player's control. There's lots of dynamic play. Priorities can change dictated by the actions of other players. Like, oh, I was going to do this. Well, okay, somebody took that. Okay, I'm going to have to change and adjust. So it's not just how do I work around that. It's, wow, my whole plan might have to change. But it doesn't screw you in a way that, say, something in Agricola would to where, oh, I really needed right. X spot. This you can you can adjust, but it's not that there are ways to circumvent it. You just have to completely change what your goals were for that round. But I, again, I see that as a positive that it forces you to change things on the fly. Oh, absolutely. Things in the game change game by game. And Dana said it best the last time we played it. She said, I haven't played this game, the same game twice, and I've played this five times. Yeah, that's that's a huge compliment to the game. I think that's that's yep. great. 
earlier I mentioned as far as the tightness of the game, especially in the three to uh, three and five player counts, respectively, because that's the higher player count on both sides of the board. Definitely, uh, it feels constricted. And again, I see that as a good thing. It doesn't have the stress intention. Again, I keep going back to one of my all-time favorite worker placement games, which is Agricola. But it doesn't have that level of stress, but it does have the tightness that mm-hmm. Agricola has, which is great. So one of my favorite, I guess, mechanisms, mechanics, whatever, for this game is the fact that spent workers are lost for the following round. Leaders are the exception. Everybody has a leader. And again, it's dependent on player count. So you'll have anywhere between three and five, I think it is, workers, i.e. dice. And if you spend them on most actions, there are a couple in which you get your worker back immediately. But if you spend them, they go out and actually work for you, do what you need them to do. They go on a siesta. They go to the uh, the Thermopylae to go rest at the bath for a turn. So you have to not only plan out what you're doing this turn, but you also have to adjust or not or 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 plan in general. Oh, I'm only going to have my leader mm-hmm. and one worker this turn because I use two workers this turn and a leader. Or maybe you just use your leader this turn and you have a whole mob. Of workers for next turn because you have all this awesome stuff you're going to do the following turn. This also encourages players to promote their workers to leaders. They're almost like sub leaders in a sense that they come back to you every turn, but it requires an action, requires a couple of workers, requires more stuff, as well as there's an ability and action to be able to get more workers, which is obviously fairly popular. It's a worker placement game, right? But yeah, just I, I really love that that me- mechanism in the game. Another mechanism I like about it is that another thing I like about it is that whenever you're fighting in the arena, the crypt can give you more points whenever you fight in there. But you have to put your disc in like you were talking about earlier. And if you have a lot of discs in there and somebody else thinks that you might be winning, they can just start piling those in there. So you can kind of force the end of the game to come. And everybody, every disc that you have in there, if that's how the game ends, is three points minus from your score. And if you have five, six discs in there, you're looking at... That adds up. Especially when you're talking a winning score is, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of around Mm -hmm. 80, give or take a little bit. You're losing 15, 18 points because you were careless. Oops. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I also like that... Uh, you can choose, as I mentioned earlier, to completely uh, just take it for the team, so to speak, and just not fight the Titan from the underworld that comes out every turn. Okay, that's fine, but it requires you to throw a disc in, which early on, that's no big deal. But as that crypt gets fuller and fuller of other, of yours and other players' discs, you start stressing about, oh, wait, I'm going to fight in the arena now. Okay, I won. Cool, I get points. So your baseline is you get four points off the top. Cool. However, like you said, Amanda, if you want to put a disc in the crypt, you can have eight points. But... (laughs) However, it's one step closer to uh, triggering the end of the game prematurely, as well as the negative points that comes from the crypt if that's full. So yeah, I think that's... I love that tension and that huge just... 
ramp up in tension as the game gets further and further along and that crypt starts filling up more and more. I think that's really, really clever uh, just in a mm-hmm. lot of fun. I really enjoy that kind of stress yep. in the game. The mind game of arena fighting and who to fight and where the leaders are and what Titans each other have that are face up and what ones you know that you have that nobody else knows. And it's just, that's, that's really fun. It is, especially in the two player game. So, so I guess I didn't explain this in the overview. So real briefly, when someone goes to fight in the arena, wherever everyone else's leaders are, you can fight anybody at the table you want, but you can only fight those players once. So there's no dogpiling on. You can't, oh, you have no Titans. Everybody, right. dogpile. No, can't do that. It's You can only be a victim once. But wherever your leader is as the defense, there's an element for each of the worker placement spaces. And that's what type of Titans are qualified to fight in the arena. And so that whole meta game of do I put my leader out early and then, oh, it's a fire space. So, OK, that makes people think, oh, I have a lot of fire titans. Maybe not. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Or you could flip it on its head and stall and try and put your leader out very, very late, if not last, and try and be like, OK, Everyone else is going here. I'm going to ignore the man behind the curtain. I'm just going to be over here. Just ignore me type thing. And again, in the two player game, this becomes highly, highly contested as far as whose leader is out first, where they are in the whole nine yards, more so than in the in the larger player counts, because simply put, you have more targets. Yeah. And then the two player, you really have to watch where you put your your leader. You have to, and you have to try to stall as long as possible so that you might be able to build up with what you think that you're going to need, but your opponent can't. And more thought on the arena. If players are going there, that may force you as the as the opponent potentially to hold back Titans and or reinforcements in case you get selected to fight as the defender. This can potentially cause you to hold back from fighting the underworld Titan, causing you to lose victory points, which most of the underworld titans provide but not all as well as potentially more points at the end of the game if the crypt fills up because you had to put a disc there so you not only lost the say two three four five points that you would have gotten from fighting the underworld titan but then potentially you lose three more if the crypt triggers so just a lot of hmm I know that you know that I know that you know type stuff, and I I really, really enjoy that because the the game, the rules are not clear as far as what's face up and what's face down. We have taken upon ourselves to play once public knowledge, always public knowledge. So once you have used the Titan to either fight the underworld titan or to defend or to attack another player in the arena, it stays face up if you retain it. That goes for Uh, reinforcement discs as well everything else is already face up and i think that works really really well because it actually it doesn't bog the game down in ap it just it becomes a bit of a game of chicken almost and in a good way the game encourages you to compete in the arena both for the valuable victory points but also to force other players to spend their titans and reinforcement tokens yet at the same time it doesn't force you into it 
but it does say, much like through the ages, force you to keep within striking distance with your military, or in this case, titans and reinforcements. You don't have to be a warmonger, but you can't ignore it either as you're going to make yourself a target. Again, even if you get attacked, you can only get attacked once per round. However, the penalty for being for losing is you have to demote one worker. That in and of itself, really not that punishing. But what you're doing is if you're making yourself an easy target is you're just gifting your opponents Mm -hmm. four or eight victory points every round. And so therefore, you don't have to be the strongest, but you just have to have enough to where people think twice about wanting to, you know, choose you to uh, fight in the arena. And I think that that is really, really cool because that actually was the deciding factor in our most recent game. Dana had a ton of Titans uh, hidden. And I was like, if two of those are the type, I think it was uh, Earth or Fire, I'm going to lose the battle and I'm going to give her points. And this is the last round. And I'm like, I just can't afford it. So even though I went to the arena and I got a Titan for free, as you do, I chose not to fight because I just couldn't take the risk of her winning and getting the points, even as the defender. And come to find out she didn't have any that would have defended and I ended up losing by three points so those four points obviously was the crux of the game but I didn't know and I didn't want to risk it and it's a whole risk reward thing and I I enjoy that in this game now I wouldn't necessarily in other games but for what this game is I think it's fantastic Another great aspect is that the final round has meaningful and non-obvious decisions. Um, I mentioned earlier the whole agonizing decisions uh, around the arena. The four to eight or eight points are critical, but discs in the crypt can hurt more than they mm-hmm. benefit. The last few rounds become harder and harder, and it's completely player dependent and group dependent as far as this mix of group of players they fight a lot in the arena this one didn't and whether or not you can be super aggressive putting discs in the crypt but again you're it's that whole risk reward potentially it comes back to bite you in the butt evaluating the action value not in money or points or anything but in the agency is tough both in your first game but also in subsequent games i think it was brian that said yeah it's really hard to value these things when it's your first game Mm -hmm. and i i said it's hard to value game to game for the simple fact that everyone's strategies change from game to game uh shipping arena or a mix or you know, a little bit of everything focusing, you know, more on the Mercator and the artisans, the the different directions that you can go, it totally changes. And so you're having to evaluate what's important this round and this game that might not have been in previous rounds or in a previous game. And I, again, a strength of the game, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. It changes round to round, game to game. It really does. Yep. And the first player doesn't change unless players actively select the action that changes it. So that could be seen either as a positive or, hey, if you guys don't mind me going first, I don't mind staying it. That's fine. However, the game doesn't punish you for, quote unquote, wasting an action, taking the first player. However, the game doesn't punish you for, you know, quote unquote, wasting an action for taking it. However, you do have to use that worker for this turn, but the positive is you get that worker back next round instead of having to lose it for a round. 
So it encourages just fighting for that first player. So on the flip side, I do feel like that standard, hey, I'm the new first player and everybody, it's just clockwise around the table. I feel like that's a bit archaic as a game design choice. And even though it's it's fairly standard, I'm noticing that I, I definitely enjoy a much more dynamic player order to where it's not always around the table. It's just, hey, you took the first player marker. You move up to mm-hmm. first in actions and everybody else just slides back. So Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it. Whoever was first player, they're now just second. It's not maybe they go from first to fifth just because somebody else chose that action. I guess I'm harping on Panthelos in that respect for this, but this could this could go for a huge number of games out there because this is the standard. And I feel like that's a bit lazy at this point. So I would like to see that addressed in, in subsequent designs in general. But yeah, I, I'll get off my soapbox. Sorry about that when I'm tangent. <laughs> so all right, stuff we don't like. The Mercator. It seems like an afterthought, and it's really not in line value-wise with the other actions. Now, again, um, you've played this, what, five times? I've played this six, and it really, because the Mercator is not as valuable, even though it's not a worker placement selection, it's not an action selection space, it's something you can do in addition to, it lessens the impact that the artisans have as far as upgrading goods and the value that action selection space has so i feel like that is a definite weak spot there is a variant that i kind of came up with that we haven't tested yet that i think would help offset that but it might make it too powerful now and that is the fact that instead of being able to upgrade just one good with an artisan you can upgrade all your goods of that type or maybe limit it to two or three or something like that to where now the Mercator doesn't take five and six actions to be able to actually trigger it. It now takes two to four and that seems a little bit more in line for the benefits that it gives. So that's a that's the one really, really uh, thing about the game, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, just the... the the scores that you can get from doing the Mercator, they're, I don't feel like they are anywhere near close to being in line to what you have to do in order to complete it. I agree. Yep. In order to be able to get the highest number of points from one of the Mercators, you have to have three goods tiles and that are fully upgraded. And that is, it's really hard to do that because you have to get the right artisan and you have to use the the discs in order to upgrade and there's just so many steps that you have to do it's not worth the small number of points that you receive for doing it right i mean yes in addition to the points you'll get bonus things like one or two titans or a titan and a reinforcement and all that and there is one other cool thing that we haven't mentioned which is the fact that at the beginning of the round everyone sees what the underworld titan everyone is is required or not to fight that round well, whenever you ship with the Mercator, you can look at the next round's Titan and des- secretly and decide, oh, I want to keep it as is, or no, I'm going to put that one on the bottom, and now what was going to be next turn is, surprise, it's this turn. So you can kind of sabotage folks, but again, and that might might turn some folks off. You could just choose to not do that, I suppose, but the fact is the Mercator is so underpowered 
and so underutilized that it just becomes a non-entity in the game and people mm -hmm. just ignore it. And so that's definitely a strong downside to the game. But again, it's not an action selection space. It's something you can do in addition or in instead of taking a, a worker action. So it doesn't, it's not game breaking by any stretch of the imagination. This is still a fantastic game. It's just, that's one glaring flaw that I feel like the game has. Yeah, it's like you just completely ignore the middle of the board. Because that's where this, the Mercator is set up. And then we've already hit on this already and the artwork, especially in regards to the Titans and the box cover, just just, just a big fail as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm, it was. There are, there are a few ways to possibly win the game. However, I feel like that really the only good strategy to have is get a lot of Titans, get a lot of reinforcements, fight a lot in the arena, and win. I don't know. I, I have been awfully competitive on a shipping strategy to where, you know, I'll take a little bit of Titans, a couple reinforcements here, just to make myself not a huge glowing red here, pick on me <laughs> target. Um, so with that said, I think shipping is completely viable. And I do think a mixed strategy also works. I don't know that it's I do think that a heavy arena fighting, hey, I'm just going to pound it in the arena here and just fight and fight and fight and fight every round. Also a vi viable strategy. So I, I think I would disagree that it's, it's, oh, go fight in the arena and you win. The end. I think if you neglect other aspects. Yeah, but I feel like that any time that I've played that... I didn't focus on gathering a bunch of Titans and fighting a lot in the arena. I had absolutely zero chance of even rounding the corner to go over 70 points. Oh, you just played poorly then. That's no. not a game problem. That's an Amanda problem. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to come over there. <laughs> All kidding aside, though. I do think that there are multiple different strategies that you can employ. I don't feel like... Uh, any one is necessarily better than the others, except you can't completely negate fighting in the arena. Mm -hmm. You absolutely have to do yeah. some of that. It's just too many points that you can't make up in other spots. But on that note, you don't have to only do that. You can diversify is what I'm trying to say. And I think that's I think that's a totally, totally good thing. And it is important to diversify because we've had games where two people were really, really big into fighting and one person was really into shipping as well. And they're the ones that won. Yep. You have to have that to at least a little bit of it to push yourself over the edge. Agreed. So in summary, Panthalos is one of those rough edge gems that I absolutely love finding. I mean... It's one that I'd heard about from Essen a couple of years ago that just as soon as I heard about it, I heard nothing about it after that. And I I actively seek games like this, and I'm so happy that I did. This has become one of the favorites with our game group, and it's it's got enough confrontation that it scratches that itch, but it's not so much that it feels like it's just all there is in this game and it, it really is a unique beast no pun intended in that respect and it's just the game that i really really enjoy um uh, a very very pleasant surprise here for me yeah absolutely 
The land of Panthalos is full of fire, wind, water, and earth. Huge, otherworldly titans fill the earth, which you can bend to your will and make them fight for you. Reinforcements will change the element that they were born under, but they do will do whatever they can to help you fight. Panthalos is an under-the-radar game. It was a poor decision to use what they did for the box art, and it hurt the game in the long run. However, luckily, I am married to a smart man that can look past terrible art and see engaging, great gameplay underneath. So, if you're just listening to the show for the first time, we rate on a 1 to 6 scale. 1, it's not me, it's you. Burn it with fire and damn you if you were to pass this game on to anyone else. A 2, it's not you, it's me. Just not our cup of tea. Accept it and move on. Three, we feel the game, it's a little below average, but there may be some redeeming features and mechanics, but overall just meh. Now a four, now we're talking above average. Mechanically or in gameplay, there's something good going on, and this is the point at which we consider owning a copy. A five is terrific, dare I say great game. Strongly like the game and almost assuredly will own it. And a six... Now you're talking a Hall of Fame game potential for us. No brainer. We will absolutely 100% own this game. All right. So as far as a rating, ladies first. I'm going to rate Panthalosa 5. The game is very good. It's one that just because we've played it so much so so recently, I'm not going to be like fighting to go to the table to play it. But again, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to turn down a game. I really like it. I feel like there's still some different strategies that I can try that I want to try. And I'm still really interested in trying your variant on the, with the artisans as well. What about you? It's a strong four, which makes it a four. Um, just the, the Mercator really, really bummed me out and kept it from being a five. Uh, I think if we try this variant uh, and it works, then hey, great, it's a five. But again, I don't feel like players should have to be required to fix parts of the game on their own. That said, it's a game that I thoroughly enjoy, am not going to be getting rid of, and I'm really excited that it's in our collection. And it's one that even though I have six plays of it, I'm still yeah, yeah, let's play that some more. I'm on board. And that's Panthalos. You about ready to wrap this up? Yep, we got to get a going. I mean, I guess right now we're in the air, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, on the way to West Texas Tabletop Convention. So again, don't forget about that. If you guys are anywhere and is in the San Angelo, Texas area, come on down, say hi. We'll have t-shirts, pint glasses, et cetera, et cetera. And hang out and let's play some games. Yeah. So when we get back, I don't know what the next episode is, but I'm looking forward to it nonetheless because we finally are getting on top of things and there's a whole lot of gaming planned and I just cannot wait. Oh, and there's like 30 days till Essen. Woohoo! Catch y'all soon. <laughs>